All right, let's open our Bibles to uh, 1 Timothy 4 this morning. Last week, if you were here, you learned a whole lot from Nathan Schneider. He did a great job teaching through biblical theology. We've been doing a series on church health, and that was our topic last week. The week before was expository preaching. This week is part two of biblical theology. Nathan did such a good job, as you uh, can find out. If you didn't hear it last week, listen to that one. It was very thorough in terms of a complete, expansive look at the story of the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and how everything in the Bible is related to Christ and the cross work of Christ. His death, burial, resurrection, our salvation by what Christ has done. Everything in the Old Testament was looking towards the coming of Christ and everything since the coming of Christ and his death, burial, resurrection looks back at that as the saving gospel. And then we look forward to the rescue where he comes to take his people home to create the new heavens and the new earth here. All of this is summarized in Luke 24. Jesus on the road to Emmaus, and he was with uh, the two disciples that were confused about Christ's death on the cross, and Jesus raised, but not yet distinguishable to them, was taking away the fog and the confusion and opened up the whole word of God to them through speaking. He said, Luke twenty four twenty seven says, that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He, Jesus, interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So all of the scripture is about Christ. Again, the great redemptive history arc of creation. That's where everything began. God in eternity past speaks everything into existence. Then Genesis 3, the fall. Sin is injected into our world. Everyone now is born into sin. Satan, the first sinner, was successful in a small way which created an incredible problem. And then there is the law that God gives to govern his people and to expose sin in the world and to adjudicate it. There's the civil, there's the ceremonial and the moral law. The ceremonial sacrificial system basically introduces how there needs to be a sacrifice or death for sin. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. There is no forgiveness of sins. And so... Temples became slaughterhouses where people sinned but had to bring sacrifices. And then there were whole days set apart called the Day of Atonement where all of Israel would be atoned for because of a sacrificial lamb that was given. But ultimately, as the Bible reveals, no sacrifice in and of itself ever atoned for any sin. It just was a symbol or a picture that was pointing to the ultimate once-for-all sacrifice to come. And that's what the prophets like Isaiah in Isaiah 53 said would come. There would be a lamb that would be led to the slaughter. Jesus Christ in the Old Testament prophesied and predicted to come. And then he came. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the gospel stories of Jesus and his birth, how he came God as man on earth, the God-man here to be the sacrifice for our sins. 
Then the church is born as the Spirit of God comes at Pentecost and the Holy Spirit opens people's hearts to know that Jesus is Savior and Lord. People who didn't even physically ever know Jesus are able to have their eyes opened up and see like today in the church age with the light of Jesus Christ opening their eyes that Jesus is real. He's the Savior that all of the Old Testament prophecies of Isaiah, that he would come as this lamb, as this as this. Son of God who came to be with us as this one who would ultimately fulfill the gospel work where hearts are opened up, where we are a new creature in Christ. Old things pass away and everything becomes new. All of that gospel is defined in the church age with the New Testament epistles where we are saved by grace alone, by the cross work alone, not by works. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And then ultimately, as we are now looking back at the cross work of Christ, we're also looking forward to Jesus' soon and coming return, where John, at the end of the book of Revelation, says, Even so, come Lord Jesus. And he will come. He'll come to bring a reckoning on the world. He'll come with a two-edged sword. He will destroy his enemies. He will receive his people to himself. And he will then create the new heavens and the new earth. And so that's a broad picture of the redemption story of biblical theology. And there's a whole lot that I left out along the way. But those are the high points of biblical theology. How all of the Bible holds together in this story. Now why is it important to believe this story? And this morning what I'm going to do is try to apply biblical theology to you. Why this is important. It's not just important so that you can be good Bible students, so that you can know the Bible uh, with accuracy. That is important, but it is even more important in terms of how you think about the world around you. What you think about God changes everything in terms of how you think about yourself and how you think about why you're here and how you think about what you're supposed to do. Listen, if you change anything in terms of who God is, is is as the perfect, holy creator. If he's just kind of the old man upstairs and we're trying to figure it out as we go along and we've kind of evolved into this um, time in life and we don't really know where we're going or why we're here, that's a meaningless life. But if you understand that God is creator, that he created you intimately knowing who you are, who you were going to be. And he has saved you in the church age as a part of this great redemption story. Then that dictates and guides for how we will do church, how we will do family, how we'll do friendships, how we'll do everything in terms of motivations, purposes, how God has gifted you, where you'll invest yourself, where you invest your resources. Understanding the gospel, understanding biblical theology orients the way that we think about life. If you don't understand the gospel, then church is just really a social club. It's really something to come together and just feel good in, as opposed to, for instance, talking about sin and feeling uncomfortable, talking about heaven, talking about eternal hell. These are incredible realities that come into play and come into focus as we understand biblical doctrine. And then we need to understand our personal role at church. If you don't understand biblical theology and you don't understand sin and God's holiness and heaven and hell and where we fit in that, 
then you just come to church perhaps to feel motivated or to feel inspired. But instead, we come to church as a part of God's redemptive purposes in each other's lives. We're all called to guard the doctrine of the church, which is this biblical doctrine that I've just talked about, the gospel doctrine of redemptive history. And we're also called to guard each other. So now this is applying biblical theology. We guard the gospel, we guard the doctrine, we guard the truth, and we guard each other. We're lifeguards. Now, it's summer, and we don't swim outside here, typically. Some of you do. God bless you and your 10 seconds of swimming. But one of my summer jobs uh, growing up in high school and then in college was to be a beach lifeguard at Virginia Beach. And uh, I enjoyed that greatly, except on days when it was really, really rough. And there were rip currents and rip tides out there. And if you're going to vacation in the lower 48 or wherever, watch out for rip currents. They're very dangerous. And so on certain days, we would have a yellow flag day. Green, it's calm. Red, you don't get in the water. Yellow means we just are allowing people to be in the water, and perhaps they shouldn't be. And so all day, you're standing You're standing on your stand. You don't sit down all day for eight hours. You stand with your rescue tube waiting to go in because somebody's going to get in over their heads, and you got to pull them back. And on a particular morning, the lifeguard crew chief said, as he always said every morning, we've never lost anyone in 17 years. We never lost anyone in 18 years. We never lost anyone in 19 years. So let's not lose someone today. Well, on a particular day, we actually lost someone in the ocean. And it was a, an area of the beach where you had three lifeguard chairs. I was on the farthest south end, and then there was one in the middle and one on the north end. And the lifeguard that was on the north end was a running back for the Maryland Terrapins. He was in great running shape, and it was his first year as a lifeguard, but he was not a very fast swimmer. So a family was together, and they were going out and going out, and they got over, out over their heads, and the water was extremely choppy, and they were being sucked out to sea. And the father got out over his head and was dragged down. And at that point, the lifeguard was going. We were all shifting stands to cover the water, and he got right up to the guy right before he went down, and the guy went down, and he missed him. And so the guy ultimately was dragged a mile down the beach um, and found to be dead when he finally surfaced. It was a horrible experience. It was an unforgettable experience. When I've gone back to Virginia Beach and I see old lifeguards or the old crew chief who still lives there and talk, it typically is a story that comes back up. We never forgot it. We never forgot it. It was a horrible experience. And I was a a college student who was studying for ministry, and so the crew chief gathered all the lifeguards up together uh, at, after that horrible experience and asked me to say something. And I remember as a young, I don't know, 19, 20-year-old, I didn't have a whole lot to say except I know that God is in control. I know that God is sovereign. It's what popped out of me. But the gravity of this situation in comparison to each other's eternal souls pales in comparison. We are to be each other's lifeguards. We're to guard the truth and we're to guard each other as we are part of each other's lives in church. God has given us to each other 
to guard each other. And that is Paul's point to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, verse 16. Look at this verse. It says, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching, which could be the word doctrine. Persist in this, for by, doing, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. That's 1 Timothy 4, 16. Paul enlisted Timothy to be a spiritual lifeguard over the church at Ephesus. And let me tell you, this was no easy task. Timothy gets kind of a timid rap by the strong exhortations that that Paul gives to Timothy. You know, God has not given you a spirit of fear, but power, love, and sound mind. And people infer by that Timothy was kind of a timid wimp. Timothy was probably the Navy SEAL option for what Paul was calling someone to do. That's what you would want to think about if you're thinking in terms of Timothy's call and mission. He is special forces on duty going to the church at Ephesus. Ephesus would have been a tall order for Timothy. Ephesus was a church where church history uh, regards as the apostle John went there to church. John who walked with Jesus. John who was Jesus' best friend while on earth. Talk about intimidating. But like any shepherd or like any member of any congregation, we're called to watch out for each other. The book of Hebrews says, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. So you don't know if you are drifting or if your friends are drifting away sometimes. And if you've been in the faith, and if you can focus on me for a second about this, it's very important. If you've been in the faith for any period of time, you have seen friends in the faith that you thought were rock solid drift away. Is that not true? People that you thought were great and were fine and were doing well and suddenly they're not and it's worse and it's worse and they're, they're out of reach. They're out of your grasp. And I saw this at Christian College. The first person I ever met at a particular Christian college was the student body president and by reputation he was going to be a promising preacher and then he was married and was going to go to seminary but didn't finish or go really to seminary and then he went to a sort of a hipster church emergent doctrine watered down situation and and 15 years later he's not in the church and is not walking with the Lord to my knowledge. Saw this with other students. There was a student leader who was in my dormitory who uh, was a voracious reader, intimidating Bible student. He would read other religions just to be up to speed so he could evangelize them. So he'd read the Book of Mormon. He'd read other heretical books and things. And he was erudite, but ultimately walked away, loved debating more than loved the doctrine. And I called him on that. You really love a good intellectual fight, don't you? And ultimately, he drifted, and he drifted, and he too was gone to the point where he wrote on a blog, this is my untestimony. And he talked about how bitter he was and how he couldn't cope with the loss of a sibling, which was a horrible experience, but he didn't know Christ. There are others who get swept away by, um, by different mythological things in our culture, whether science fiction or, or what have you, that people begin to syncretize something that's false with uh, reality and they, they go away from the gospel. 
One time, we, uh, my wife and I knew someone in our former church who had a piano teacher who was a Mormon, and the piano teacher's connection to her son became an idol, and it became such a great thing that they didn't realize that a wolf had crept into their home, and they, this person began to influence them with Mormonism, and she, being a thinker, began to look up Mormonism and began to say, you know, is Mormonism really that different from Christianity at all? And suddenly... We see pictures posted where she's being baptized into the Mormon church and has left her home and left her husband. Timothy's task here is clear, and it's deep. 1 Timothy 4, 16, watch yourself, guard yourself, and on the teaching. Persist in this. Why? In doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. The word save here, sozo. It's talking about being preserved. You will be preserved in the faith. You won't look like a Christian and then suddenly drift away. You will be kept in your Christian walk. And we'll talk about that because that can be a confusing concept. We know that once you are saved, you are always saved. And so what part do we participate in when we are guarding our own life and our own doctrine and guarding other people's lives and doctrine. Well, Timothy was called to guard himself and his flock by keeping two commitments. You can find that on the outline and perhaps on the screen behind me. Keeping two commitments. First, guard life and doctrine. And the second is to keep guarding his life and his doctrine. Well, let's get the first commitment. The first commitment is guard life, guard his life and doctrine. Paul telling Timothy, guard these two things. This is your first and foremost commitment. This is a summary of the epistle, 1 Timothy, by the way. Everything kind of frames up under either the category of a person's life or their doctrine. And we are to guard both with vigilance, with tenacity, with circumspection. We are to keep close watch over these things. These are areas that are very easily slipping away from us all the time. It's very easy to water down either the truth or to water down the standard of what God wants you to be like in your life, guarding yourself, keeping close watch. Timothy's personal character is, first of all, what he's talking about, guarding your life, your integrity as a believer, guarding against compromise to moral failure. And you know of many in spiritual leadership or many who you might know that suddenly it comes out that there's moral compromise and it's a shock. But typically it was a slow drift that led to something that was later discovered. Timothy was under a lot of pressure as the shepherd to do this. He undoubtedly was in an intim- in a very intimidating situation. There was a There were false teachers. If you read through 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, there's doctrines of demons. There are things that are going on that are are unresting, unrestful situations at the church of Ephesus. And 1 and 2 Timothy, just for you Bible students, is talking in particular about the church at Ephesus. That's very important to understand. That's what brings some, some context to what Paul is talking about and doing here when he's talking about people like Hymenaeus or Alexander the coppersmith. There are names that are associated with particular ministries that 
Paul set up on his first missionary journey that now he's sending Timothy there to guard and guide. Why did he pick Timothy? 2 Timothy 1.5 says that Timothy was raised by a sincere faith, a faith that dwelt in his grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice. And he said, I am sure this faith dwells in you. You'll stand strong because you're a genuine believer. 2 Timothy 3.15, how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation. You've been taught your whole life the word of God. Not everybody gets that privilege, but Timothy had that privilege where he was taught the word of God. He was taught the truth from childhood. He had an unbelieving father, but he had a believing mother and grandmother. So we're not sure if if, uh, Paul led Timothy to Christ. I don't think Paul did because it looks like his grandmother and mother did. But Paul called Timothy a son in the faith, nevertheless, because he was a disciple of Paul. Luke 6.40 says a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Paul had adopted Timothy to be his proxy, to be his arms and legs, to be his mouthpiece. When Paul would go away, he knew that he could leave Timothy in the charge and things would be okay. Paul probably met Timothy on his first missionary journey in Lystra. If you read about that in Acts 16, 1 to 3, Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. And a disciple was there named Timothy. A believer was there. He was there already. The son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, who, but his father was a Greek. By Acts 16, Paul is coming around on his second missionary journey, by the way. Remember, Acts 15 is the Jerusalem Council where he's trying to reconcile Jew and Gentile in the church. And we talked all about that ad infinitum, ad nauseum with the book of Galatians. So I'm not going there. That's at, that was a joke, but that's Acts 15. Acts 16, he's going around the second time. So perhaps Paul met Timothy before when he led Lydia to Christ in Lystra. We don't know, but he finds Timothy coming through the second time and scoops him up. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, Acts 16, 1 through 3. So Paul and Timothy were like brothers. They loved each other deeply, Romans 16, 21. Timothy, my fellow worker, 1 Corinthians 4, 17. Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, 1 Corinthians 16, 10. Timothy comes to see that you Um, Put him at ease among you, for he is doing... When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So there's this connection together. 2 Corinthians 1.1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. Philippians 1.1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ. 1 Thessalonians 3.2, Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel. 1 Timothy 1.2, Timothy, my true child in the faith. 1.18, I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about him, that by them you may wage the good warfare. Again, Timothy was Paul's heart, was Paul's proxy, proxy, but Timothy was Paul's missionary warrior to be inserted in a church to fight the good fight of faith. You know that resounding phrase throughout the pastoral epistles, wage the good warfare, fight the good fight of faith. Second Timothy 1, 2, Timothy, my beloved 
child. Philemon 1.1, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother and fellow worker. Hebrews 13.23, we don't know who the author is there. You should know that our brother, Timothy, has been released. So Timothy was a prisoner for the gospel, just like his father in the faith, Paul. Paul loved the church at Ephesus. He wanted to leave his best there, 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you, Timothy, so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. He's putting Timothy there to guard people and guard doctrine. Guard lives and guard the truth. That's what Paul is doing. Listen, when Paul, at the end of his missionary service, knew he was going to die, he was going to go to Rome. It had been prophesied by Agabus, this New Testament prophet. And Agabus said, you're going to be in chains, Paul. So Paul knew it was going to go, was going to happen. If I go to Rome, I'm going to be put in prison and I'm going to die. Second Timothy is that scene where Paul's in the Mamertine prison and he said, I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. He's ready to die. But before he went there, Acts 20 says he summoned the elders at Miletus, which is a little fishing port. And he called those elders to meet with him before he was going to go up to Rome. In Acts 20, he talks about how the elders need to guard the lives of the people in the church and to guard the doctrine. So it's life and doctrine. Listen to this, verse 27. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God, that's doctrine. Pay careful attention to yourselves, that's life. And to all the flock, that's the lives. Guard them in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. That pay careful attention phrase is the same phrase that we have in 1 Timothy 4.16. Watch yourself. Verse 20. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things. Guard the doctrine. Pay careful attention to wolves that will come in and use scripture and just twist a little bit of it to get their own way, to tweak the gospel, to make it tasty so that someone will want it, even something that will be harmful to them. Because twisting these things, listen, verse 30, to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. Remember that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. It's pay careful attention. So there's a lot of emotion bound up in Timothy's mission and post. He's under satanic attack immediately. First Timothy 4, 1 and 2. There are, the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. He said, what kind of cult worship was going on in Ephesus? Nothing on the surface. It's all underneath the surface. Satan is very insidious. You have to look at your relationships, where they are with the Lord, what people specifically believe. You have to get into personal conversations with where people are spiritually because the people that you engage, the people that you are friends with, 
will change who you are, will take you on a path one way or the other in terms of what they believe and what they choose to do as a pattern of their life. It's always that way. In reverse, iron sharpens iron, right? We're godly for each other. We're each other's caretakers. We serve each other. By contrast to that, people who are bound up in immorality, people who are bound up in not just rank, abhorrent, aberrant teachings, but things that are just softening or weakening the gospel, things that don't have the hard edges of defining what sin is or God's holiness is or what it means to be a true follower of Christ. When you engage those people on a heart level, on a friendship level, with depth, they will take you on a ride to a place you do not want to go. All of First Timothy is talking about life and doctrine. I mentioned this before. I know we're doing a lot of Bible study, but it's good, hopefully, to show you how important this teaching is. First Timothy 4, 6. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you followed. This is Paul to Timothy, guard doctrine. First Timothy 4, 7. Have nothing to do with silly, irreverent myths. And then talking about life. First Timothy 4, 7 to 10. Train yourself for godliness. That's the Greek word gymnazo. Train, be in the gym For godliness, bodily training is of some value, but godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. For this we toil and strive. And then doctrine, 1 Timothy 4.11. All of this is building to 1 Timothy 4.16. It's it's life and doctrine. 1 Timothy 4.11, command and teach these things. It's doctrine. 1 Timothy 4.12, let no one despise your youth, but set... The believer is an example in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. That's life. Timothy, guard your life. Not just what you shouldn't do, but you need to be a pure person, a loving person, a person that's filled with faith. And then doctrine, 1 Timothy 4, 13 and 14. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. That word devotion means a earnest depth of devotion. Hopefully that's why you're here, to hear the public reading of Scripture, to be exhorted by the truth, to know the truth and to be set free, to know the truth and be convicted of sin, to devote yourself to the Scripture, to devote yourself to the Word of God because it it preserves you on the path. It keeps you on the path. Guarding your life and doctrine are two bumper rails as you go down the path. And you just, a a guarded doctrine is is what puts you back on the path. A guarded life where you're going, I want to be like Christ. It puts you back on the path as the world wants to take you out of the narrow road path of being like Christ. Well, that's the first commitment that Paul is telling Timothy to make that we all should make. And here's the second commitment It's to keep guarding one's life and doctrine. It might sound redundant. Like, what am I going to say for the next, I don't know, 5, 10, 20, half hour, I don't know, about this? What haven't I said? 1 Timothy 4, 16, persist. Look at that word, persist in this. Just take that phrase home with you. Because you've heard sermons on guard your life and guard your doctrine. It outlines well. Okay, we're going to talk about life. Now we're going to talk about doctrine. Well, 
That's point one. Point two is you have to persist in this. You have to dig in and believe that this is your calling in life. This is Paul saying, Timothy, about yourself, persist in this and persist in this for others. Persist. Present active imperative is a command. Continue. Remain. Why? Because, and this is where it gets tricky, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. It's like you're on that lifeguard stand. I got to be in shape. I got to be able to get out there and swim. I got to be able to make it through the shore break. I got to be able to discern where somebody can't touch. I got my people counted. That person's in trouble. And boom, I'm gone because I was ready for that moment. And you're ready because you can save yourself in tumultuous waters. And you can save your, your rescue at the same time. That's what Paul is telling Timothy to do. Persist in this and you will be someone who has a saving work. What does that mean? We know Ephesians 2, 8, 9 is clear. We do not save ourselves to become Christians. We don't. Only God through his sovereign, electing, saving work can save us. And only God can ultimately keep us. I believe that. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. By grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, lest no no man may boast, so that no one may boast. By grace alone, we're saved. So what is this talking about? This is talking about something that God does, especially through Christians. Let me say it this way. Do you save somebody when you evangelize them at all? Do you do anything to save them? Well, we give the message. We're commanded to do it, and and the Word of God and the Spirit of God does the work and brings somebody from death to life. it's, It's instantaneous, it's regeneration, and they're saved. And oftentimes, we don't even know when it happens. The lights come on, and they come on invisibly. But God has saved that person remarkably, and then you begin to see the fruit of that. In sanctification, when we are called to help each other grow, are we really doing anything that is spiritually helping them to grow? Well, we're kind of doing the same thing we do when we evangelize. We present the word of God. We pray for people. We walk with people. We have conversations with people. We have hard questions that we ask people. We pull things out of people. But ultimately, God is the one who grows the person. And in the same way, in terms of a person's salvation, they're saved at a point in time, they're kept and preserved in that salvation, and then they're ultimately brought to heaven, signed, sealed, and delivered, and glorified. There's a past, present, and future category for God's saving work. You're saved, you're being saved, and you will be saved, as someone put it. And somehow... In that middle category, God uses us as Christians to help people preserve along the path. He just uses us for his own glory. That's what this is talking about. Paul is saying to Timothy that your work as a pastor, as a shepherd, as a lifeguard is that significant that God can use you as a preservation agent as people are in the church on the path to heaven what it's talking about we are a means of grace to people we're used of god as a means to help others grow 
There's saving grace that's all of God. But then there's this sanctifying work where God uses us to help people along the path to be more and more like Jesus Christ. And somehow he uses us when people are truly saved. He uses us. God saved them and he's going to keep them saved. But he uses us to be a bumper rail to bounce people back into the middle. Say, how does that work? Well, that's up to God. That's his mysterious work. But Paul's point here is don't don't underestimate your powerful role that you have in someone's life. There are people who are, you don't know where they are spiritually, and they start to divert off the path, and we are called to grab them back. And whether God saved them before that moment or is saving them in that moment or will save them in that moment is up to God. Our job is just to grab people out of the riptide and pull them safely to shore and say, sit down, cough it out, and don't get in the water for a while. We're instrumental in people's spiritual lives and people's spiritual journeys. So the root is always God in saving people, but he involves us as we confront people and as we are helping people making disciples and helping people. Hebrews 3 is a it's sort of a foretaste of things to come. We're going to go into Hebrews in the fall, but Hebrews 3, 7, and 14 is talking about the first generation of Jews who were in the wilderness, and because of complaining, they were laid low in the wilderness, and they didn't enter into the promised land. And whether that means they were eternally damned in unbelief or not, you know, we'll see what I say in the fall <laughs> uh, season. But um, they were laid low by God, never to enter into God's promised land of rest. But this is an example to the church that the writer of Hebrews is using, saying we have to warn people. Listen to verse 12, Hebrews 3, verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. What are we to do to help people from falling away like the first generation did in the wilderness? It says, but exhort one another once a week. No, listen, every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence, that's the doctrine, we share in Christ If we hold our original confidence firm to the end, if someone is not holding firm to the gospel at the end of their lives, they are in a very, very spiritually dangerous position. You want somebody at the end of their lifetime. We were praying for someone today as an elder board where for three decades we've been, I haven't been here, but there have been people here who have prayed for a person who possibly is at the end of his life, who is now opening to the Lord and opening to the gospel and opening to receiving counsel. The significance of that is what we're talking about here. Someone who's holding firm to the gospel at the end of their lives. You don't want it to be the other way. And it takes a daily influence in the lives of each other day after day to keep persevering down the path of the narrow road, looking to Christ, the author and the finisher of that person's faith. 
And how that works, that we're instrumental in that, that's up to God. But he does use us as we go one foot in front of the other to the finish line. And God gets glory for this. Pointing others, we're pointing people to Christ and we're influencing people through relationships to hold on to the truth. This is Father's Day, but this applies to mothers. This applies to grandmothers. This applies to you who don't have kids, who have friends and children in the, in the faith that you can influence. But 1 Corinthians 7.14 says that otherwise a child in the house, when there is not a believer there, when there's no believer in the house, otherwise a child is unclean. But when a believer is in the house, either the father or the mother, in this case, in 1 Corinthians 7.14 That child is holy. The idea there is not that a child is automatically saved because they have a Christian parent in the home, but that a child is dramatically influenced by the saving gospel and sanctifying gospel just by being in the house where there's a believer there. God is sovereign in salvation, but the eternal stakes are high in terms of what we are involved in with each other. So there's pressure on, but there's also pressure off. I remember when, as a lifeguard, the, uh, the person that was confirmed as, as dead, I remember the shock I felt over that. I don't know that I really have grasped how shocking it is to see someone who looked like they were alive, but suddenly now they are spiritually dead. How shocking that is to us. And we need to be sobered by that reality. But that is a reality that's going to happen. We will not be able to save someone who God has let go. There are those like Judas Iscariot, who it would have been better had that person, what? Not been born. David Jeremiah, the Southern California preacher, that he said regarding John 15, where Jesus is talking after Passover before the cross, that I'm the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me or remains in me and I in him, he that he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch that withers. David Jeremiah said that branch that's thrown away and withers is a direct reference to Judas Iscariot. You can look like the real thing. You can look connected to Christ. You can experience the power of God like Judas did. You can preach like Judas did. Jesus probably had just washed Judas's feet and you can be dead and dead and thrown away. That happened at the church of Ephesus, 1 Timothy 1, 19 and 20. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, 1 Timothy 4, 1 and 3. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Women walking away, 1 Timothy 5, 14 and 15, over passions, passions, gossips, and being busybodies. He says, verse 14, I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary, Satan, No occasion for slander, for some have already strayed after Satan. So there are men, there are women, there are teachers who are vulnerable when the church isn't gathering around giving the appropriate accountability with doctrine. 1 Timothy 6, 3 and 5, verse 4, you have uh, 
people who become unhealthy, an unhealthy craving for controversy and quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, and evil suspicions. People, especially in teaching churches, can become very, very proud, very, very arrogant, thinking they know better. And it's a temptation for all of us. We have to be careful because it creates friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. So we have, we have an upped ante here at Anchorage Grace as a church house of exposition, as a church house with Bible teaching, with a Bible institute that we're going to be putting on again, with the, the seminary that's coming. All these things are great, but great temptation comes with something that's great. We don't want to be spun up with believing we have a corner on the truth. What we have is the truth, and we're humbled by it, and we tremble by it, and we want to learn it. But we want to guard it, and we want to guard our lives as we guard the truth. Verse Timothy 6, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. I've got the knowledge. And then they swerve from the faith. It's a balance. It's a balance of trusting God's sovereignty, fighting the good fight of faith, Trusting God's sovereignty in 1 Timothy 6.12, take hold of eternal life, endure, enduring for the sake of the elect. We want to be those where in 2 Timothy 4, we say with Paul, I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And Paul himself in 1 Corinthians 9 said, I want to run the race in a way where I'm buffeting my body so that at the end of my race, I won't be disqualified. He was circumspect himself. I'm that way. I was talking to someone earlier this morning saying, if I was asked the question, am I in the word of God? You know what I would say? All the time. I mean, I'm, I'm always in the word. I mean, for hours, for hours this morning, I was in the word. But why? Well, hopefully it wasn't just to be able to produce a sermon professionally, but I'm in the Word because I want to be in the Word, because I'm feeding on the Word, because it's shaping me, it's influencing me. And that's how we all need to be. That's how Paul needed to be so that at the end of his life he could be confidently secure in his life and in his doctrine. We can't earn it. It has to be what God does and what he did in our lives, keeping our eyes on Christ. The Puritan Richard Sibbs, the English preacher known as the sweet dropper, he would drop sweet phrases, said, it's not sleepy habits, but grace and exercise that preserveth us. We have to be in warm spiritual exercise as we grow um, Listen to John Piper. He said, we must remember this. There's no standing still in the Christian life. Either we are advancing toward final salvation or we are drifting away to destruction. Drifting is mortal danger. Either we give heed to the word of the Lord or we drift away from it. There's no sitting still in the river of indifference. Its current runs downstream to the falls. I'll finish with this. It's Father's Day. We are called to guard our lives and guard the doctrine. And we're running a race. And we have all our people next to us in the starting blocks. This kind of race is one where winning is just getting across the finish line to Christ. And we want to take everybody with us, right? 
My dad was a, uh, a high hurdler in college in Virginia, and he won the uh, high hurdle state championship and when he was in college. And he used to talk about how he did it, and I never forgot. And I thought, you know, this is a nice way to end on Father's Day because we have to be Christians who are as deliberate as he was to win a race. His secret to success was to always go to the blocks and kick his legs out to dig his feet comfortably into the block and then relax his shoulders. Take a deep breath and he would blow out all of his air and he would lift his head and he would look to the finish line, to the tape and wait to explode out of the blocks. But the key to success was never taking his eyes off of the tape until he broke it. And that's our command. We are to guard our lives and guard our doctrine and to guard each other as we look to Jesus, looking at the author and finisher of of our faith. We're going to break the tape together.